Packard Labs podcast, a podcast about the many phases of technology innovation. Today I'm turning the tables. I'm here with Hewlett Packard Labs distinguished technologist and IAAA fellow Dejan Milojic. Dejan is normally our interviewer, but today I'm going to interview him. Dejan, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. So let's kick off. You've worked all over the world. How did you come to get from where you started to here? Well, actually, when I started, um, I, I didn't move much. So I went to my elementary school by foot. It was five minutes away. My high school was six minutes away. My university was 12 minutes away by foot. And then when I started working, it was 12 minutes by car. Um, however, um, actually, I started moving um, out of stubbornness. Um, one lady where I used to work uh, in Belgrade, um, when I asked her uh, about some opportunity to go abroad, she said, you stand no chances to go there. I said, why, why not so? And, and she said, well, because you, know, it, you need to collect tons of materials and the time is too short. And it was like you know, showing a, a, a red flag to a bull. And so I immediately jumped on it, even though I didn't really want to go anywhere, but it was challenging. So I applied for a uh, grant for Germany. Uh, I obviously got it. Uh, I was sorry because it was indeed a lot of uh, materials to collect, but that, that was my first move. So I moved to Germany, and it was about the time when war started in Belgrade, in, in whole of ex-Yugoslavia. And so I spent there uh, two years, and then um, I wanted to go, I got my PhD there in, in, in two and a half years. Uh, and then I wanted to uh, go and work in Grenoble, but they didn't have openings there. They told me, why don't you go to the Cambridge, Massachusetts? So I went there, spent five years there, and then it was great, I, I loved it, but they started downsizing, um, and I didn't want to stay in the smaller company, and that's how I uh, applied for uh, Hewlett Packard Labs. It wasn't even the, 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 the best offer I got, but I, I simply love the people and I love them to this day. Oh, and now you've been here for 20 years. That's pretty unusual. Years, yeah. What makes you stay? What makes you come to work every day? I think it's all about people. It begins with the people and ends with the people. I came here because the, the manager who hired me and even the managers who didn't hire me uh, show enthusiasm and appreciation for me. They weren't selfish. They worked as a team, that's why I came. And, and I stayed for the same reason. I'm surrounded by people, a lot of people left. It's, it's natural, it's very dynamic. Uh, Silicon Valley, people are leaving. But you know, as long as I have a crew of people, including you and you know, Paolo, Colin, my immediate managers and, and the leadership, I enjoy it. It's all about the people. Excellent. So what are you working on at the moment? So I work on, on two projects. Uh, the, my primary project is uh, on the software for the product engine. You're going to have to explain that, dot product engine. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a mouthful, uh, and explanation is even more complex. So we are used to traditional computing, but as of lately, um, because of the end of Moore's law, there was a need for more computation power, and the only way was in specialization. So we started developing uh, specialized accelerators, and that wasn't enough. So we looked back in uh, analog and hybrid computers, which combine analog technology and digital technology, which is a paradox in its own right, because my undergraduate thesis was on hybrid computers. So turn the clock around 36, 36 years later, I'm again working on, on the same themes. So we really are going back to the future. That's right. We're going exactly back to the future. So 
um, a colleague of mine and uh, multiple colleagues of mine developed the, the, the technology um, and then uh, other colleagues developed hardware architecture. And now together with a, a number of team members, we're focusing on the software for that dot product engine. Um, and it really comprises of, of multiple pieces, um, but you know it will take the whole podcast well, to its right, own. Right, but still, yeah. if you're a programmer, you want an API. That's right. But there's many, many things below that that take you all the way down to the hardware. It, it's really interesting. It's like a vase uh, because there's many platforms, and then there's many hardware, many software platforms, many hardware platforms. And uh, in between, there's something called Open Neural Network Exchange, which was originally used for exchanging models between platforms. But pretty quickly, the hardware developers realized that they can't develop a software stack for all these platforms. But if there's this common layer in between Onyx, then they can only write towards that, compilers for that piece, and then they will inherit input from all these other software platforms. That's what we've done too. So uh, a couple of team members developed plugins for Onyx. Um, we also started working with universities, so they help with a compiler. We've taken it and uh, uh, brought it to the next level towards productivity. I was going to ask you about that. You spent a lot of your career combining industry and academia together. How do you make that work? Uh, you know, when they ask Pele how he plays soccer, he can't <laughs> explain it. So the same thing with me. It, it's just natural <laughs> instinct. I, I like uh, talking to uh, students, to professors. They have some ideas, and I work in, actually, all my life I was working in research institutes or labs or one or the other kind. And, and they are close towards technology transfers. So I understand requirements for products, I talk to them, understand what could be productized, and it just happens. Hmm, so you're kind of a den mother to the project. Could be, yeah. <laughs> so what's some, if you look back over your whole career, what's your, what would you consider your most significant accomplishment? Well, um, there are a couple of ways that I feel accomplished. One way is when I was the individual contributor, when I came up with um, some solution that is new, innovative, that really made me happy. One example of that, I'll go in the far past. I was asked to help with the banknote machine, which was counting money, banknotes. And it worked fantastically running Unix uh, operating system, except that sometimes it will skip a banknote. And you know, banks had some issues with <laughs> that. I, I, I won't go into explaining why. So they asked me to help. And they realized that the Unix operating system frequently ran some demons, and they would take over so the interrupt wouldn't come. And they asked me to rewrite the whole device driver, and I agreed. But pretty soon, you know, I wasn't happy with that. I knew I've done many device drivers. I knew how to do that. So I, so I thought to myself, well, it's just the acknowledgement to the uh, communication protocol. Why don't I change the firmware on the board? Yes, it was a solution only for that board, but, you know, it will shorten the time to develop. It will guarantee because even device driver could have issues. And, and I came up with that. That was pretty innovative, worked fantastically, uh, and I had so much fun testing counting of these banknotes. So, so you, you exorcise the demons exactly. from a banknote counting exactly. machine. That's exactly. excellent. So that's one type of the work. The other type of the work is where I work with a lot of people. And um, I found myself natural uh, herder of people. 
and uh, working with them to accomplish something. There are a number of examples of that, both at work and volunteering. At work, one was open service. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, it hasn't, uh, it, it was a cloud computing test bed that uh, Intel, Yahoo, and HP started, and I took over as a technical director thereof. And then we managed to grow it. Uh, I probably contributed to about 10 additional members. But we had 16 sites around the world, around all regions. US, some, some pretty well-known universities, UAUC, Georgia Tech, um, CMU, and then in Europe we had um, Karlsruhe, which is one of the uh, yeah, uh, oldest universities there, uh, SESGA, Spain, Russian Academy of Sciences, and then in Asia Pacific we had uh, MIMOS Malaysia, IDA Singapore, um, we had in China, China Mobile, China Telecom, and, and, a, and a bunch of others. So we, um, we were, as I said, ahead of the time, but I was proud that we managed to run a, a, a couple of hundred projects on top of that infrastructure. We ran like four um, symposia, we published a lot, and a lot of learnings contributed to each of these individual organizations. I suspect herding is the right verb there. That's right. With all so many people in so many places, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Which leads me to ask you about diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, you must think diversity is important, I assume. You, I, I don't think you can succeed uh, without diversity. I mean, we have all kinds of diversity. First, gender diversity, sexual diversity, uh, color of the skin, geographical, all kinds of things. I was global all my life, uh, starting from Belgrade. I started uh, moving around even with 18 years I came to United States. But then when you work in Asia Pacific, in Europe, United States, uh, South America, Asia work with different people, you have to understand them. You have to build rapport with them. They need to trust you. And so unless you respect diversity, there's no way. There's a little secret to this why I became diverse. So I was raised by a very dominant grandmother, uh, but she wasn't the only one. There was about a dozen aunts who raised me as well. So, you know, I at, at least gender I had to respect. Otherwise, as a kid, I was taught lessons very quickly. And, <laughs> and, and it transferred for the rest of my life. So even today, as you know, I sit, uh, uh, there's like four or five women around me. So you, you have to be respectful. Yes, I hope you can do a little better than respectful, but it's a good start. Um, so what about mentoring? Do you mentor? Tell me about mentoring. Well, I like both sides. I like mentoring and I like being mentored. Uh -huh. I always had a mentor. Um, I remember when I was studying in, in labs, uh, I asked my manager at that time, Patrick Skeglia, uh, about uh, the mentors and uh, I offered one, he uh, recommended the other, and I ended up with both. And um, I enjoyed both. Um, I'm still occasionally seeing one of them. The other retired. But I remember the first one taught me the best lesson. He came into the room and uh, and I brought this many papers. I started explaining. I said, okay, sit, relax. And there was a pause for five minutes, silence. And it was really strange to me, you know, because I was so dynamic and moving. And he taught me a lesson. Okay, you have to calm down. On the other side, uh, mentoring, you know, I, I was on about eight um, PhD thesis committees. Um, but, but also working with universities, with students. I like to roll up my sleeves and talk to them, work with them. 
But there's other aspect also that, that I was a soccer coach. And that, that taught me a lot of lessons how to work with, um, with kids and, and, and then young adults because I coached from under 10 to under 19. And uh, the key lesson there is you have to be honest because if you lose them once, it's over. And this probably carries, for, carries forward to the work you've been doing with the IEEE over the last several hundred years. And tell, me, tell me about your IEEE role. Several hundred years in terms of effort, probably. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, it started like it starts with anyone. You know, someone asks you to do something and, and, and then you foolishly accept and then it leads to more and more and more and more. So um, I was first on some editorial board because someone invited me. Next thing they offered me to be editor-in-chief. Then it led to being invited on the board of governors. Then someone suggested after my first year, why don't you um, run for the president? No, you're the candidate. And, and I became the president of Computer Society. Then they told me, well, you should go to be director of the board of IEEE. And I said, well, actually, I applied five minutes before the deadline for that. And that led to being candidate for IEEE president. But in all of this, again, I think it's the people, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and the results. And I'm so balancing between achieving some meaningful result, uh, and, and there, were, there are a number of those like Computing Now, which was the, at that time very modern electronic delivery platform for um, content or special technical communities, and most recently, uh, technology predictions. We were really successful with that. We've been doing it for five, six years, and people enjoy it, you know, and I'm excited. Every, we gather sometime, and uh, they want us to do it much earlier, but we always do it in the last moment. We gather, we, you know, quarrel, what are the technologies? Someone is always unhappy, and yet everyone's happy. We come up with something, it becomes very visible. Right. Now, it's not, it, I undergather it's not that common for someone from an industry mm. to be up for, for, to be the president. Why do you think that's, in your case, going to be a good thing? Well, I have always tried, always, literally always, tried to be useful to HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and uh, IEEE. So whatever I do at work, I see how I can contribute to IEEE. Whenever I work at IEEE, I see how I can contribute to Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Obviously, I work here, that, that is priority. But um, to give you some examples, um, I am starting a new grand challenge within IEEE on uh, AI machine learning uh, applied to cybersecurity, which we ran as uh, events for uh, a few years now. But I'm trying to see whether we can benefit our own corporation. So I'm working with um, a fellow Bresnicker to talk to our chief uh, information security officer to see how can we benefit from that effort. Um, I'm talking to some of our government partners, I'm talking to universities, um, how they can contribute to that effort, how they can benefit. So it has to be a win-win situation and, and some cross-leverage. It's always like that. I've heard it said that the IEEE is old-fashioned, mm -hmm. isn't very relevant to today's people just starting their careers. How do you how do you bridge that gap? How do you is it relevant? Are they just not seeing something? Is there some change that has to happen? Well, I think that um, these four million people who are downloading five million docu five million old-fashioned documents from old-fashioned IEEE Explorer, obviously finding something relevant. It doesn't it sound that irrelevant. It's millions and millions of people. It's millions and millions of people, millions and millions of documents, mil not millions, but thousands of standards, 
couple of thousand of conferences. Now, um, I don't want to be on defensive mode, but I think we should try to modernize because the young people are getting together at meetups, not conferences, uh, and, and set up like this rather than planning for a year ahead or five years for really big conferences, which are required, but you know, they could be complemented with modernized events, with modernized publications, which are reports that are timely, quickly, and of direct benefit. Um, and then standards as well. Uh, we need to maintain the rigorous quality of standards for communication because otherwise the phones won't work, um, wireless won't work, uh, broadband won't work. But for if you want to standardize that, that onyx that I was talking, that intermediate layer, yeah. it has to be done quickly by developers rather than spending three years to develop something because in three years these models will be forgotten. Right, but you you want to modernize and harness the power of IEEE to do its good work quicker for more people, exactly. more inclusive. Exactly, you you got to do that, and, and 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 we're trying to do that. Everyone, it's on everyone's mind, starting from the board all the way down. Okay, I'd like to pivot a bit mm -hmm. towards um, international property. You've you've got a million patents. I've seen you can barely get into your office for the stack of patents, and you publish a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not common for all companies to do that because they're worried about losing mm -hmm. IP. How do you balance those things? Well, f first of all, I think they're complementary and, and they work well together. So uh, publication is protection of, of your IP. So if, if you publish something, no, no one can sue you because it's, it's, it's officially a published document. Uh, Patent gives you additional rights that even further protects you uh, and, and protects others from uh, also producing the products uh, of the, creating the products of, of, of the same type. And, and they're extremely important. Now, um, when I came, uh, I didn't think this way. So for a few years, I just ignored uh, patents altogether. And, and then I was forced to go to some patent committee and I filed a patent and I still didn't believe into that. It was easy for me. I thought I spent two months to write a paper and for the idea for patent, you know, I spent a couple of minutes and it's done. But it's not true. It really has to be innovative. And my uh, aha moment was, and, and, and the first patent that was actually awarded for me came out of necessity. So I still remember one early morning after the weekend, I came to office and I was talking uh, on the phone with my wife and I turned around and um, looked where my laptop was supposed to be, locked with a Kensington lock. I saw only the piece of Kensington lock, it was <laughs> cut. So the laptop was gone. And uh, I was so annoyed because it, it was locked and someone cut it and so I came up with idea and filed as a patent as a virtual lock where you, know, you would have, at that time there weren't uh, connected uh, watches and, and laptops were still working on the wired networks. But I envisioned that they will be wireless, that phone be wired, wireless, and that as long as there's connection, you are safe. If it goes out of um, the, the space where you can reach communication, you uh, raise alarm, or, or you can do the alarm uh, from other spots. And that was the first uh, patent that, that I received. I was pretty pleased about that. And from then on, you know, there's a balance how narrow versus broad patent is. So narrow is more concrete, but broad has broader protection. And the other thing, I just recently, I still haven't replied to a gentleman, uh, I'm, I won't name him, but on Facebook he complained he was making fun that it took them five, six years to get a patent while it's not relevant. Well, that's not true. 
when you come up with the idea, you file it, it's probably a few uh, weeks and it takes uh, maybe a couple of months that it be approved for filing as a patent because you first filed disclosure. And then, you know, within the next few months, you file the patent application and you're protected from that time. So it's only really a few months. And then it does take uh, uh, some more time until it becomes the, the public uh, patent and, and then uh, a, a maybe a year or two until it gets uh, published and granted as a patent. And, and international will take even more. But I think they're extremely important because with all these stealing of technologies, they're so much impressed, they are critical. Okay. So lastly, mm -hmm. apart from lock up your laptop, what advice would you give young professionals? Well, you know, I gave a commencement speech to uh, University of Oregon and um, I gave them a few advices. The first advice is that going extra mile always pays. Uh, it may not be obvious to you at the time you do it. And I, and I have a number of examples. So when I was studying in Germany, I didn't know that I'll do a PhD there. Uh, and so I was asked to do some testing, which I, where they say, you may or may not do it. And I still did it. And, and then I decided to do a PhD and that test was critical. Another example is once I got a PhD, I was asked whether I want to publish it as a book. And I was thinking, well, what do I get out of it? And, and I still decided to go that extra mile. It wasn't too much, but you know, still you need to do preface, um, uh, index, and many other things. And it turns out that because of that book, I was granted outstanding status as a researcher and got my uh, green card much quicker. And, and there are many, many, many other examples where just going extra mile pays off. So that, that's my uh, first uh, It's a kind of professional karma. Could be, yeah, <laughs> could be. Then the second example is that people need to stay positive because life throws at you many things. You know, you think you are at the, your highest, suddenly you drop, you get laid off, uh, you know, health is issue sometimes. There are many issues. You, you got to stay positive. That's the only way and, and, and see positives in whatever. And the last example is, um, you know, it's all about people. So you've got to uh, maintain your relationship, uh, respect others, uh, trust others, uh, and, and, and that, that's the only way to go. Excellent. I think it's a great note to finish this podcast. So next week, we're going to return you to normal programming with Dan in this seat. And thanks so much for watching. And if you enjoyed this, please, please subscribe. There are many, many different ways to do it, and there are buttons all around that will help you do that. So, Dan, thanks very much. Thank you. Hope to see you next week. Bye.